It is an extreme joy uh, to be back with you personally and for my family to uh, reconnect. I think the first day uh, through the church doors when we were back, all the kids had big smiles on their faces, and so uh, we love this body. Uh, We're glad to be back. We trust in the Lord's guidance in our lives, and uh, we pray this morning uh, that He has a word for us. So join me in praying one more time. Lord, we need you. So I pray this morning that as I open my mouth, that what would happen would be a demonstration of the Spirit and your power, that you would feed your people what they need. You would wake up sleeping souls. You would even cause dead people to come to life. Lord, do this for your great namesake. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have been, if you, if you are a Christian, you have been adopted into the family of God. He has lifted you from your lowly position and elevated you to the status of son and daughter. This loving Heavenly Father whose love is un fathomable. You can't get to the bottom of it. He has, Christian, chosen you to endlessly, forever, pour out His grace upon you, grace that you and I do not deserve. And He has done this completely freely, not because He felt compelled and not because of anything you have done to deserve it. Christian, God has caused His face to shine upon you. And yet many of us, dare I say all of us, do not always live with this clear picture of our relationship to God. We go through a trial and we think, is God mad at me? We trip up in our fight against sin and we think we've fallen from that high status. We chicken out of standing up for Christ in the workplace, and then we don't pray to God for a week because He's not going to listen to us anyway, right? Sure, we're still Christians, but we're no longer on the A-team. God's put us on the bench. He no longer looks upon us with the same joy and affection and grace that He did when He first saved us, right? We have, we have the lips on our lips the words of the prodigal son, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just just let me be one of your servants, please. Church, these, hear me, these are lies of the devil from the pit of hell, full of error, and have nothing to do with God's truth. Absolutely nothing. They rob you of joy and hope and peace, and they are lies. And so this morning, with God's help, I want to banish those lies and remind you of truth, truth, that you, Christian, have nothing to fear because King Jesus has eternally set his love on you. Or as we just sung, I want you to shake off your guilty fears for God owns you as his child. And I want to do so 
uh, with a story from the Old Testament, a story about a king and a cripple. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Now this story, it points to Jesus, as many texts in the Old Testament do, in at least two ways. The first is that we're talking about a king. And the records of uh, the kings of Israel in the Old Testament, as God's anointed kings, they often reveal patterns, or what the New Testament will call shadows that lead to Christ. They show how the king is meant to act, and we can look at their lives and learn something about the life of Jesus and how Jesus similarly rules as a king. But the second way the Old Testament, and particularly the stories about the kings, often point to Jesus is that they record the failings and the weaknesses of these earthly kings. And in so doing, the Old Testament is proclaiming and self-attesting to its own limitations that something better needs to come, a better king needs to come. And so it creates hope in us to look for something greater to come. And we obviously know that that king has come and his name is Jesus. Now, we're reading about King David this morning. If you remember, uh, King David, David, the shepherd boy, he was anointed as king by the prophet Samuel right before he killed that great big giant Goliath, right? However, there was a problem. You remember what that problem was? There was already a king on the throne, and his name was Saul. So David's anointed king, but there's a king on the throne. So what does David do? He ends up living in exile because he trusts the Lord. He didn't grab at the kingdom. He waited and entrusted himself to the Lord and saying, the Lord will give me the kingdom in his time. And in due time, King Saul and his three sons were killed on the battlefield with the Philistines. And you might think there's the time David's gonna get the kingdom. Well, he got one tribe, the tribe of Judah. David was king over Judah. But at that time, there was a living son of Saul. His name was Ishbosheth. He took the throne. He got the other 11 tribes. Now here's the issue. They all knew that David had been anointed king. So this was not a, you know, well he's the next king in line, he's the son of Saul. No, this was rebellion against God. They knew David was God's anointed king, yet they chose a different king. They wanted to submit to a different kingdom than the one that God had chosen for them and anointed. So David continues to wait, trusting himself to the Lord. And again, in due time, Ishbosheth is also murdered. And finally, the Lord establishes the kingdom, all 12 tribes of Israel, under the rule of David. And what ensues is a period of blessing. David goes in and captures the city of Jerusalem, makes it his capital city. The Ark of the Covenant that itself has been in exile is finally brought back into Jerusalem, into the capital city. The Lord enters into a covenant with David and promises him that unlike the house of Saul, the house of David will last forever. There will always be a king to sit on the throne from the house of David. And then David subdues all his surrounding enemies so that Israel is living in peace. And that's where uh, we enter the story in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So let's read the text. This is God's word. And David said... Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan 
He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then the king sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and bring in the produce and your masters, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Verse 1 of this passage reveals the king's plan. If you're following along taking notes, I've got five uh, points beginning with the king. This is the king's plan in verse 1. He has a plan to show loving kindness because of an oath. David is seeking someone from the house of Saul so that he can show what the ESV here calls kindness. Now, in the context of 2 Samuel, this is shocking. The house of Saul, remember, has rebelled against David. Even when Saul was killed, they put another one of Saul's sons on the throne, rejecting God's king and choosing their own king. The house of David and the house of Saul, therefore, are somewhat rival kingdoms. And in ancient warfare, you don't keep the enemy alive, much less the heir to the throne. If you want to rule on the throne, you make sure you eliminate any and all rival potential heirs. This is dynastic policy 101. Yet here we find David asking if anyone remains, is there anyone, does anybody remain to the house of Saul? And we would expect that if the answer is yes, that person is in an extremely dangerous and precarious situation. But shockingly, we hear that David is seeking someone from the house of Saul to show them kindness. Now the word here in the Hebrew is hesed, and I'm usually not in favor of teaching people that don't know Hebrew, Hebrew words. That will produce the type of people that go around talking about the shalom of God or calling their youth group the Shekinah glory. You know who you are, let's not do that. But this word hesed 
is very important in the Bible. And I think a good way to translate hesed is loyal, loving kindness. It's often translated, at least in the ESV, steadfast love, oftentimes mercy, and here we see kindness. But I don't think for our ears this word kindness really grasps the depths of what's going on. And so it's important to highlight, whether you translate love, mercy, kindness, that it's a loyal action. It's based on promises. It's because of a relationship that exists between two individuals, and they've solidified their relationship through a ceremony and made promises. We call this ceremony a covenant. What's a covenant? Well, I think a good example today is marriage, right? In marriage, you have two people that come together. They're solidifying their relationship publicly. They're taking oaths to love this person uh, in a particular way, in sickness and in health, until death do they part. They don't say, hey, wife, if you're good to me, I'll love you too. Hey, if dinner's on the table, I'll love you too. Husband, if you're employed and bringing that check home, then I'll love you. If you don't, that's, that's not what we do, right? That would be a terrible wedding if you went to that. But you, if you're married, have made vows till death do you part in sickness and in health. I will stay with you no matter what. I have made public promises to live with you in a particular way regardless of how you're treating me. We could call that a form of hesed. It's, it's a promise to do loving kindness to someone that is backed by an oath taken in the presence of witnesses. So look back at verse one. David said, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now who is Jonathan? Jonathan is one of the sons of Saul that was killed on the battlefield with Saul. Jonathan, therefore, would have been an heir to the throne. However, after David got anointed king, Jonathan switched his allegiance and made a friendship with David. Think about that. He was the heir to the throne in the house of Saul, but he knew that God's choice was David. He said, I'm going with God's choice. Though I could have a kingdom, I'm going with God's choice. But that put him in a terribly risky situation to be going against his own father while he was still alive and on the throne saying, I'm going with this king. And so we hear in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David uh, and Jonathan Uh, make promises to one another. They enter into a covenant together. So in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 through 15, we hear Jonathan say to David, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love. There's that word again, hesed. Show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love, hesed, from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. He knew that God was absolutely going to give the kingdom to David and cut off all his enemies. And Jonathan says, when that happens, show me hesed. When that happens, take an oath to show me loving kindness. Promise me you'll do this to me because I'm following God's anointed king. And so at this time, with Jonathan having been killed on the battlefield, David is looking Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show them this loving kindness, loyal loving kindness, loving kindness that is backed by a promise and an oath? That's the king's plan. In verses two through four then, we see the king's choice. King David is not only choosing who on the surface would appear to be an enemy, someone from the rival kingdom, but he chooses someone who is weak and lowly in every way by the world's standards. 
So in verse 2, we hear that there's a servant remaining. His name is Ziba, and he's brought to David. Knowing that the kingdom has firmly been given to King David, Ziba is wise. Look what he does. He says, are you Ziba? He doesn't go, yeah, that's my name. He says, no, I'm your servant. Right? You know I'm from the house of Saul. You know my name's Ziba, but I'm letting you know that I am with you now. I recognize God has given you the kingdom. So David makes his request in front of Ziba. He says, do you know anybody left? Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I can show this loving kindness to? Now look in verse 3. It's noteworthy here that he says that I may show the kindness of God. This loving kindness that David shows as God's anointed is not simply his own loving kindness, but it is due to his position as the king, as God's anointed king, that he is mediating the very loving kindness of God. Nowhere else in scripture is the phrase, the hesed, the kindness of God used. One other place it is used that it is the kindness of the Lord, and we just read it. It's in 1 Samuel 20 when Jonathan says to him, show me the kindness of the Lord. He recognizes that he will be mediating as God's anointed the very loving kindness of God as God's king. So in verse 3, Ziba answers David's question and he identifies that there is one individual by the name of Mephibosheth. Say that five times fast. That he remains alive, he's the son of Jonathan, and he's crippled in both his feet. So David then seeks where he's living. And Ziba tells him that he's living in the house of Machir in a place called Lodabar. This Mephibosheth, the survivor of the house of Saul, is in a very lowly state. Here, the grandson of Saul, the grandson of the former king, he ought to be living in a palace waited upon by many servants. But he's living in a place that appears to be a play on the Hebrew words. Lodabar sounds exactly like the Hebrew word for no thing, nothing. Where do you live? I live in nothing. How's it going for you? I'm crippled. He is in an incredibly low state as the former heir to the throne. He's gone from being at the top of society, humanly speaking, to the bottom of society. Wondering has anybody remembered him living in this place of nothing? No doubt having to be attended to and helped by others for his livelihood. Yet this is the king's choice. This is who he chooses, an enemy, a supporter of the rival kingdom, and one who is weak in the world's eyes with nothing to offer him. Then in verses 5 through 8, we get to the king's call. As readers of the story, we know a lot more than Mephibosheth does, right? We know that David has made an oath to Jonathan to do hesed to his family. And we know that at this point in the story, that's what David intends to do. He's looking for a survivor that he might show kindness to. But if you're Mephibosheth and King David's servants come knocking at the door and say, the king wants to see you, what are you thinking? I've read my history books. I know what's going to happen. I know that this could be my number is up. I've been called. So in verse 6, when he comes to see the king, what does David or Mephibosheth do? He does exactly what Ziba does. He says, are you Mephibosheth? He says, I'm your servant. Just want to let you know I'm going to cause no trouble. 
you're the new king. I know I was, you know, I don't really tell anybody I'm from the house of Saul. I just live at Makir's house. I, I mean you no harm. I'm not going to do anything. We also know that Mephibosheth was certainly worried because what's David's first words to him? Look in verse 7. Do not fear. Here we're at the heart of our passage. If you're Mephibosheth, you know what happens when there's a regime change. And so you've been content to kind of hide out in this place of nothing, hoping that people would just leave you alone and maybe you'll be able to die in peace and live a long life. How could you, a, a cripple, be a threat to the kingdom anyway? You're not out gathering an army, you're just hiding away. Just let me be overlooked and let me live. But now I've been brought to the king. And I think this is it. Time up. And then he says, do not fear. And as you lift your head from bowing to the king with your jaw still on the floor and you hear him follow up with the words, I will show you kindness. You would just be blown away. Here the ESV is good, but the verb in the original is actually far more emphatic and intensive. It would be better translated, I will surely show you loving kindness. I will surely show you hesed. I will surely do good to you, the type of good that is backed by an oath. That's the type of good that is coming your way, Mephibosheth. Sure, it's coming backed by a promise, backed by an oath. I will absolutely do it, says David, and I will do it thoroughly. If I was Mephibosheth, I would have been happy just to spend my life living on in obscurity. So to hear these words from David would have been unfathomable when he was called. But notice then, it's not a vague kindness. David then specifies what this loving kindness is going to look like. So in the second half of verse seven, he says, I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. That's the specific loving kindness that he's going to show him. Now, we're not sure precisely what the fields of Saul are. They could have been some land that he acquired when he was king. I think more likely, however, it's probably the tribal allotment of the promised land that was Saul's and Saul's family. And probably what happened, when the house of Saul was removed from the th throne and David became king, some opportunist probably came in, squatted on the land and said, this is mine now. The house of Saul's gone. I'm taking this land. And so Mephibosheth the cripple, what's he going to do? He had to go find his friend Makir in the town of nothing and say, will you help me? Can I get my land back? Well, David's going to make sure he gets his land back. And this land, land is income. This is an agrarian society. The land produced your livelihood. And so living in the time of nothing, Mephibosheth literally had nothing and was dependent upon Makir caring for him. But now he has land and his livelihood is being restored to him. Can you imagine this loving kindness receiving this from the king? And even more than that, Mephibosheth then is invited to the table of the king. Not just for a day, not just for a week or even a year, but forever. He's to eat at the king's table perpetually. Can you imagine that first day he shows up? Isn't that like Saul's grandson? Though we beat those guys. What's he doing here? He's a cripple. 
And that's society showing up in the king's court, maybe having to get helped out of a chair, sat down at the king's table. Oh, but no, David says you're here every day at the king's table. That's who comes to my table. That's the type of king I am. That's the loving kindness I show because of the oath that I took. He's not at the king's table because he's merited it. He's there because of the king's promise. Now look at Mephibosheth's response in verse 8. What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Now this image of dead dog needs a little bit of explaining. This is not the nice image of your pedigree, labradoodle, fluffy, who you've just had to euthanize so he can go live forever on the dog farm. This dead dog is a derogatory term. Dogs in Israel were like rodents, scavengers. To be do a dog is lowly enough, but to be a dead dog is even worse. We might say today, who am I? O king, that you would look upon me, a decaying, maggot-infested possum. Mephibosheth, he knows what he is. This is not false humility. He's of the house of Saul. He's a cripple. He's got no right being in the presence of a king. And so this scene closes with the amazed rhetorical question hanging in the air, who am I, this dead dog, that you would look upon me? That's the king's call. In verses 9 through the first half of verse 11, then we move to the king's action. These aren't just empty promises. The king ensures that what he said he will do, he is going to do. He brings Ziba back in and he declares to him that everything that was once Saul's, he has given back to Mephibosheth. Notice he didn't say, I'm going to go plead with the current landowners if I can get it back. I'm going to go see if I can make a deal and get them back. No, he's the king. This is an authority that he has. I have given it to him. He has all authority and he has given it back to Mephibosheth. And he tells Ziba, you and all your sons and all your servants, you're not serving Mephibosheth. He's got land, you're going to work it for him. He doesn't need to work his own land. He sits at my table. You're going to have to work it for him and give him his income and his produce. These are not empty promises. The king, God's anointed, is not impotent to implement his intentions. David is not delaying either. Notice that he is ensuring the pieces are in place so that his promises get carried through. This king, God's anointed, is a king of action. What he promises, he will surely do. And then in the remaining verses, we see the king's beneficiary. The king's beneficiary. We see what it means to be a beneficiary of the king. What type of life do you have if you are a beneficiary of King David, God's anointed? These verses recount a number of statements about Mephibosheth's restored state. Look at the second half of verse 11. It says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Notice here, he's not simply a high-ranking official, nor a highly respected guest, but he lives as if he has been adopted into the king's family. He acts and is treated as a son of the king. 
He has some authority to walk around that court that others don't have given to him. That's the state he's been raised to, living as a son of the king. Then we read next in verse 12 that Mephibosheth has a young son. This simply is a sign of his prosperity, right? The house of Saul was being cut off, was being eliminated, but now he can have a son. He lives securely in the king's palace. He's got the peace and protection that he can have a family. He doesn't fear for his life and wonder if he's ever gonna die. He's, He's one of the king's sons. He's under that protection. He's been an adopted son and he lives securely. And then next, the second half of verse 12, it says, all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. He's now in a position of authority. He's been provided for. He's got servants to work his land for him. The king has ensured this has happened. He's been adopted into his family. He lives securely and he's being provided for. Someone who probably lived on somebody else's paycheck before. Now I can hold his head up high and can provide for his own needs because of the kindness, not because of his own merit or hard work, but because of the kindness of God, of King David, of God through King David to restore his land to him. And then lastly, we read in verse 13 that Mephibosheth is living in the capital city, the new capital city of Jerusalem. He's no longer in the town of nothing. He's not even just in a better city. He's in the city, the holy city of the promised land. He's in Jerusalem. And why does he live in Jerusalem always? For he always ate at the king's table. I don't have time to go home. The next meal's in two hours. I'm here because I got to be close to the palace because I got a meal to eat. I'm always at the king's table. That's, that's, that's how elevated he has been in the society. That's Mephibosheth. And he walks around this city like a king's son. He lives here and always eats at the king's table. He's been provided for. He lives securely. Now just a note, the final words of the passage where it says now he was lame in both his feet may seem a little bit of a strange conclusion, but they're very typical in Hebrew literature which often repeats itself. But I think here they also function as a reminder of his lowly state. They're saying, yes, this Mephibosheth, who's like a king's son, always eating at the king's table, living securely, been provided for, eating at the king's table, that Mephibosheth, yeah, the cripple. Don't, don't think like it's a different one snuck in the back door. It's the same one I told you about who was a cripple, that weakling who was an enemy of the king, who was rejected by society, living out in the town of nothing, that one. Yeah, that's what I just told you. This is not where he's at. Don't forget where he came from because look what the loving kindness of the king has done. I believe this story was recorded by the Holy Spirit to teach God's people about God's anointed king while also pointing beyond itself to the greater king who would act similarly and yet far transcend anything recorded in this passage. Just as King David chose to show loving kindness to one who was weak and who was his enemy, has not King Jesus chosen to set his loving kindness upon you, Christian? One who was once his enemy? One who was weak in the world's eyes? 
Romans 5.10 reminds us that it was while we were still enemies with God, we were reconciled with God. It was while we hated God, while we were rebelling against his kingdom and his anointed. We loved the rival kingdom. We followed the prince of the power of the air. That's the kingdom we were a part of, and we wanted nothing to do with King Jesus. We hated him and shook his, our fist at him. You remember your own estate. Whether you were a deadbeat, alcoholic, drug addict, fornicator, or you were a self-righteous hypocrite who just hid his lusts and his desires from public and sought to pacify your guilty conscience through religious rituals, you were an enemy of God. Everybody in this room either still is or was at one time an enemy of God and his king living for the other kingdom, sowing to your flesh and reaping destruction. And at that time, that's when God reconciled you. He didn't say clean your life up. He didn't say show me some allegiance. At that time, and you remember when that time was, the Spirit caused your eyes to see. We're reminded also from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Christian, remember when God set his love on you, when God determined to show you loving kindness, you were an enemy, you were weak, you were foolish, you were shameful, you hated him. That's when the king came to you and said, yeah, I want that one. I'm choosing that one. I'm choosing that one. And that one, and that one, that's who I want in my kingdom. God didn't look upon you and be like, oh, I need them in my kingdom. They're pretty impressive, I better get that one in my kingdom. You had nothing, zero, zilch, nada. You had nothing to offer God, not a single thing. And God said, I want you. That's the choice of the king. But do you remember the king's call? Just as David authoritatively called Mephibosheth to himself and then spoke boldly to him, do not fear. Just as King David did that, has not Jesus done that to you, Christian, and so much more? Did he not call you and say, come to me and do not fear? Now notice, David wasn't sitting on the throne, twiddling his fingers, wondering, hoping, begging that maybe someday Mephibosheth might come to him. Maybe he might rise himself up from the time of nothing and just walk to Jerusalem. He didn't wait for Mephibosheth to ask him into his heart. He didn't knock on the doors of the town of nothing and say, anybody in there? No, he said, get Mephibosheth and bring him to me that I might show him loving kindness. And if you're in Christ today, God has grabbed you from your town of nothing, from your lowly estate and said, I'm going to do good to you. Do not fear. And if he didn't call you, you would still be in your mire and filth, that town of nothing. And just like Mephibosheth, when he called you and you stood before him trembling, recognizing that you are standing before the Lord of the universe, 
before the one whom you have spent every moment of your life, which he has generously given you, causing the sun to rise and the rain to fall upon you. You spent every moment of that life in rebellion against him, serving the other kingdom. And you suspect that's why he's called me. My time has come. And he looks at you and says, fear not. I will surely show you loving kindness. Do not fall on your face and worship just like Mephibosheth. Who am I that you would have looked upon me, a dead dog? But you have, you have, Lord, you have. Who am I? And he tells you, fear not. Why? Because you should have every fear coming before Jesus. You owe him everything, yet has lived in rebellion to him. But he says to you, fear not. Why? Because he has the authority and he says, there's no condemnation. For you, Christian, no condemnation. Fear not. Jesus is still calling today. There are those in this room who do not know this Jesus and this marvelous love. Maybe you're a kid in a Christian home. Maybe a friend brought you here today. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe it's your first Sunday through a church door in 10 years. But Jesus calls. Do you hear him calling? Don't keep living in your lie. Don't keep pretending everything is all right when it's not. Don't quiet your conscience, listen to it, and admit your true state before the king and hear him say to you, fear not. I know all that stuff. Fear not. I'm going to do good to you. Do you hear him call, sinner? Follow Jesus. You will never know love like Jesus's. You will never know joy like the joy he puts in your heart. You'll never know peace like he can give. You'll never know hope like he can give. Sinner, do you hear him call this morning? Fear not. Fear not, sinner. Fear not. I will do good to you. Christian, just as Mephibosheth was taken from the town of nothing to go live in Jerusalem, so much more. Have you? Have you? This has happened, Christian, in your life. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his glorious son. Just as Mephibosheth had the inheritance of his family's land restored to him, how much more has King Jesus given you an inheritance kept in heaven, guarded for you to inherit on that last day? Just as Mephibosheth was seated at the king's table, so much more. Where have you been seated? At the heavenly places with Christ. Beside Christ in heaven. That's where he's raised you from your lowly mire and filth. He's taken you, he's called you, he's acted. And just as Mephibosheth ate from the table, like one of the king's sons, you have been adopted by the Holy Spirit of glory. God says, you're my son and you're my daughter. You walk around Jerusalem with that authority, with that status, humbly knowing I've done all of this for you. And just as David promised to do loving kindness to Mephibosheth because of his oath with Jonathan. How much more has Jesus shown unfathomable, unmerited, never-ending loving kindness to you because of the oath of the new covenant? This is the better covenant. 
The blood of Jesus that was shed on Calvary as he died for the sins of his people, suffering in their stead, bearing their punishment and shame. Christian, hear this truth. You, Christian, have nothing to fear. He's going to do good to you. He causes all things, yes, all things. Yes, that thing that's in your mind right now. Well, not that thing, no, that thing too. All things to work together for good. You're good. That's the loving kindness of the king. And he says, nothing, what's that? Nothing, not that thing either. Nothing will separate you from that love. I'm gonna give you that love, so I'm always gonna do good to you, and it's never gonna end, and nothing can even threaten it, because I'm the king, and I've called you, and you're in my kingdom, and you will come to heaven, and I have an inheritance for you. That's going to happen, Christian, and you don't deserve it. But because of the promise of the new covenant, it's going to happen. And that love didn't come to you because Jesus felt good one day. That love is coming to you because on the cross, he said, it is finished. And on the cross, he, or after the cross, he got up out of that tomb. And he ascended into heaven, and he went into that holy place, and he says, and you're coming with me. Christian, you have nothing to fear because King Jesus, the king of the universe, has set his eternal loving kindness on you because of the unshakable, unchanging, eternal new covenant. Let's pray. Lord, if this were not true, this would be blasphemous. That you would have such Love, oh Lord, as Paul prayed, would you give us strength to comprehend that love? We need to be strengthened that we could even grasp the kind of love you have for us. Help us, Lord, to take our minds off ourselves. Cause the lies of the devil to flee from us, Lord. Restore to us joy and hope and peace. Fill us as empty, weak vessels with your power that we might do wonderful things for your wonderful name. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.